We're on chapter 27, which is the founding of a yoga school in Ranchi. And today we're starting from page 242, at the very last paragraph of this page. Um, in our last class, we had a really fun kind of in-depth understanding, or at least a look at the concept of organization, what it really means. We looked at how our very body is an organization, our family units are organizations, our friends are organizations. I mean, it's all wherever one or more people come together, there is some understanding of the fact that there's a structure and a flow to that relationship that allows for energy, emotion, thought, word, action to be appropriate in accordance to that particular unit, be it two people, be it four people, be it a thousand people. There's an appropriateness to how we share, how we think, and how we respond. Of course, the chapter begins humorously with Sri Yukteswar asking Yogananda, why are you so averse to organizational duties? Because that's how we think. We think of an organization as a burden sometimes. And of course, a lot of them can be. A lot of them become very heavy when the organization itself is, becomes the most important thing. is the same, the, uh, same for our own bodies, isn't it? Our body is an organization, but the moment we become obsessed with the body, that's when the organization of the body is no longer helping us. But when we're more aware of the individual soul that inhabits the body, then the form of the body, in fact, can be a wonderful vehicle to freedom rather than to bondage. And you can apply that same principle to any larger and larger organized form or structure. Then, of course, Yogananda, in his early 20s, starts this school that he called Dihika. Um, this was in a, with seven students in West Bengal. And then he says, within a year, they go from seven to 2,000 applications, even though they could only, at that moment, um, have residential accommodations for close to 100. Now here we are. Yogananda explained a little bit about what they did in this Vidyale, he called the Brahmacharya Vidyale. We talked a little bit about the different stages of the four ashrams of life. He talked about how he really gave the energization exercises as one of the key principles to all these children. And of course, something that each of us want to now even more consciously uh, include and integrate in our lives. And now we find ourselves right here. In the Vidyale, I had to play father-mother to the little children and to cope with many organizational difficulties. Now, wherever there is organization, <laughs> there is difficulty. <laughs> they go hand in hand, which is not a bad thing at all, in fact. Let's see what he says following. I often remembered Christ's words. Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, oh, where am I? Or lands. lands, there we are, for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Now, of course, those are um, words that don't quite make sense to us. So, Yogananda explains further. Sri Yukteswar had interpreted these words. The devotee who foregoes the life experiences of marriage and family and exchanges the problems of a small household and limited activities for the larger responsibilities of service to society in general is undertaking a task which is often accompanied by persecution from a misunderstanding world, but also by a divine inner contentment. So let's just look at these words as a little visual. Here we are, some of us, um, we've left, you, know, you don't have to leave your families, of course, it doesn't mean like, oh no, no oh, now I need to, I'm sorry, now I need to have to go off. You know, it's not, we don't have to leave anybody. The idea here is that we're essentially just expanding our consciousness. 
Now, in Sri Yukteswar's reality, of course, he was building a hermitage for the brahmacharis and for you know those who were going to live a very monastic life. So, of course, he was interpreting it to them in that particular context. But he himself was a married man and only took the Swami vows after his wife passed away. So for us, it's not so much that we have to kind of break away from our old life. But what does Christ say? There is no man who hath left house or brethren or sisters or mother or father. Essentially saying we're so limited by that. We think this is our world. This is my mother. This is my father. This is my husband. This is my children. These are my sisters and whatever. And this is my world. And I live in this world and only that which happens inside this world is of you know concern to me and absolutely everything else is not now for those of us who did leave to a certain degree something or the other uh, again not physically but in wanting to live and expand especially into a community life into a life for our guru what did we receive for having kind of left a certain aspect behind we received a much larger family we have a lot more brothers and sisters now we have a lot more children now we have a lot more parents now we have many more houses now because every one of their houses is our house whether in this country whether in america whether in europe wherever ananda exists we have a home wherever ananda exists we have a family wherever ananda exists we have a responsibility so we don't just go there. If you go to your uh, relative's house, you don't just go there and say, I'm here, you know, uh, do something for me. No, you're like, can I help you in the kitchen? Can I do this? What about this? Oh, your children need some help. Let me go and why don't you? Because you take responsibility for those that you consider yours. And so what Christ is saying is when you are able to leave the limited understanding that this is my world and you embrace a much larger understanding. He's put it in terms that in Kali Yoga were more appropriate because you had to kind of separate yourself from the world a little bit more in order to live a spiritual life. But now that's not necessarily true. But what will happen in the process is in the embracing of a larger reality, you will also embrace the way Christ puts it. He says persecutions. But persecutions in this particular sense also means just difficulties, trials, tribulations, troubles. You know, I mean, think about your, our own family. <laughs> you know, there's always some little thing going on. Either the child's not listening to you or your husband or wife aren't in perfect attunement with you or you want to do something but somebody else wants to do something else. I mean, it's just, it's the most natural thing that is. Now, multiply that by a hundredfold that many more people, that many more things to take care of, that many more responsibilities to be aware of. Naturally, those difficulties will come. But those are the difficulties that shape us. Those persecutions are what mold us into perfection. Never assume that by entering a spiritual organization or a spiritual setting, life should become easier. In fact, you should walk in knowing that wow now i finally take on the challenges that will shape my soul now finally i expand myself to take on responsibilities that i would never have been able to responsibility not for things but responsibility for my own consciousness which i even don't hold in my own home but now i must hold because here everybody's trying to do the same thing doesn't mean everybody's succeeding all the time doesn't mean everybody's perfect already. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need any of this. It is because we're seeking perfection that we've come to such a setting. And it is the difficulty of the setting that really creates that perfection every day of our lives. And uh, it's just a very, very important aspect when we look organizationally. Yogananda, in his, when he lived in the ashram with his guru, you know, yeah, there was, his guru was molding him and of course Sri Yukteswar was not an easy guru to please. But that life was limited and small and Yogananda just had to kind of follow certain basic instructions. Now suddenly he's got potentially 2,000 students. All the thoughts about how does this is going to work, what's the financial realities to it, what are the uh, you know, jobs that I'm going to have to generate, what are the responsibilities, how do I keep the kids really active and busy. And now suddenly it has become that much more. But that's what 
Yogananda needed in that moment to expand his own consciousness because he could easily have, on the other hand, just as appropriately contracted and said, now I'm a monk, so now I don't have anything to do with this world and I'm just going to wander, you know, by the Ganges and that seems like a pretty good life, doesn't it? So here we are, many of us, willingly embracing these persecutions, willingly embracing these difficulties for we know the blessings that they bring and then Christ adds at the end after persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Of course in the regular traditional Christian ideology this means that then you get to go to heaven and you just get to live in heaven but of course Christ is not talking about that eternal life. He's talking about having perfected your consciousness, having shaped yourself into the image of God through taking on these both outward and inner responsibilities, you eventually get to the stage where never again do you have to do this. And that now you get to live in that perfect bliss, whether in this world, whether in the next world, whether in pure consciousness, it no longer matters to the yogi anymore. Anything you want to say, Narayani? I was thinking about that word, persecution that sometimes doesn't need to be in big ways. Many times happens that uh, someone starts joining the path and soon after they come to us like, oh my God, you know, my family is just stopping me from meditating, from attending the classes. They are not even pleased by having, you know, a picture of one of the masters or even having, you know, spiritual uh, books around and they come to us like very very concerned like is this a sign that I need to stop uh, going forward on the path is this a sign that this is not my path and for us it's like so happy this is happening to them because indeed that's a sign they are going on the right path and sometimes persecutions comes um, come persecution come just within your own house, sometimes with your own mother, with your own children, you know, with your cook sometimes. <laughs> I don't know what form uh, can take for you, but, but know that persecution doesn't need to be a big thing. Persecution is something that is trying to stop you from moving forward or something that is just bringing your energy down so you feel discouraged and not move forward or, or obstacles that keep coming on the way. And the more your consciousness expands, the more those persecutions will take different form. So for each one of us must be a persecution because the spiritual path is all about overcoming the ego and transmuting the ego. And if we don't have tests, obstacles i mean how, how do we know how to transcend the ego if everything works for our favor i mean there is no growth the ego continues to be pampered and continues to be pleased you know and everything you know it's in place so it's important for us to joyfully embrace those persecutions those obstacles because that means that life is asking of us to expand our consciousness if there are not obstacles we will always live in this tiny little world which is all about me mine i so embrace those persecutions and when you find an obstacle in your life know that wow god is really interested in me and it means like you know there is there is an opportunity here to put the teachings into practice and i'm indeed expanding my consciousness and becoming more sympathetic uh, with other people's realities and that's not an easy thing to do when you are being accused uh, persecuted or when you are being blamed by something and you find a way not to react to it, to that persecution, to that accusation, that's when true greatness comes. And we can see in the life of Yogananda, in the life of Swami Kriyananda, he had 
thousands of persecutions in many different forms and how he was able to deal with that test, with that accusation, with that blame, uh, it was remarkable. So don't be afraid of those people, you know, that are trying to blame you or judging you or pointing out a fault uh, on you because that's a great opportunity to expand our consciousness. One day my father arrived in Ranchi to bestow a paternal blessing long withheld because I had hurt him by refusing his offer of a position with the Bengal Nagpur Railway. I love this dynamic between father and son. Yeah. It makes, you know, you think of masters, you think of these great self-realized, you know, gurus living in a, just a different world and surrounded by this protective halo where nothing's going to happen to them. And here he is like, his own father is like upset with him and maybe even not talking to him, a little hurt by him. It's just regular things, isn't it? Aren't our own parents, friends, loved ones sometimes get a little upset with us because we're not doing what they think we ought to do? And the very same is true right here for Yogananda. Son, he said, of course, now he's coming around. I am now reconciled to your choice in life. It gives me joy to see you amidst these happy, eager youngsters. You belong here rather than with the lifeless figures of railroad timetables. He waved toward a group of a dozen little ones who were tagging at my heels. I had only eight children, he observed with twinkling eyes, but I can feel for you. <laughs> eight children. <laughs> for us, that's like, wow, that's big. But here, Yogananda now, of course, had hundreds. Every time I think about Yogananda's father and him, you know, I obviously naturally think of my own earthly father. And when I came onto the path, how he was not happy either. But little by little, how when he saw, not so much, he still doesn't understand the spiritual side of it at all. But he does understand the practical side of it. And he does, you know, see how smart in the sense of the world that I've gotten when I was, when we used to live on that rural property. Who is this guy? It's okay. Rajesh will take care of it. Um, somebody just walked into the house. <clears throat> When we lived on that rural property, we were talking about it in that satsang, you know, we had to learn how to plumb and learn how to do electricity, learn how to do farming, learn how to do, you know, finally for the first time actually work with money that wasn't even our own money, but existed for such a large work and had to figure out where it's going to go, how it's going to be utilized. And in things that, as my father said, I would never have, you know, myself learned. And you already in a year know so much more than I do. And you have to bring that practical aspect to the spiritual path. And here, Yogananda's father was a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya. <laughs> you know, he wasn't even like, I'm such a worldly man and so I therefore oppose my child's you know, spiritual desires. I mean, he was himself a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya. But yet, it was only when he saw Yogananda really practically apply also these teachings that finally he relaxed and he said, you know what? what you did In was fact, right. wasn't uh, Swamiji that once asked Yogananda about the spiritual stature of his own father? And Swamiji asked Yogananda, was your father, you know, very advanced spiritually? And Masters replied, yes, he was, but he still had one little attachment there that he wasn't able to get rid of, and that mm -hmm. was the attachment to his children. So in a sense, I can see why Yogananda's father was hurt. I think he had, you know, some sort of... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Don't uh, all parents have yes. some like <laughs> imagined trajectory for their children and then somehow if the children wander from that, they're like, ooh, what's going on? And attachment means also like you think your children ought to behave in a particular way, ought to live and lead a particular life or, or to have a specific uh, jobs and careers. And sometimes we get so attached to how they should lead their lives that we are not able to live our own <laughs> lives. So I know as a parent, and we can only imagine because we are not, 
but how difficult it is to cut that you know string that unites us all and of course even though we all have to be united at a soul level but not to the point that we impose even consciously or energetically to our own children even what we think is best for them with a large fruit orchard and 25 fertile acres at our disposal the students teachers and myself enjoyed many happy hours of outdoor labor in these ideal surroundings we had many pets including a young deer who was fairly idolized by the children i too loved the fawn so much that i allowed it to sleep in my room at the light of dawn the little creature would toddle over to my bed for a morning caress one day I fed the pet earlier than usual, as I had to attend to some business in the town of Ranchi. Although I cautioned the boys not to feed the fawn until my return, one of them was disobedient and gave the baby deer a large quantity of milk. When I came back in the evening, sad news greeted me. The little fawn is nearly dead through overfeeding. In tears, I placed the apparently lifeless pet on my lap. I prayed piteously to God to spare its life. Hours later, the small creature opened its eyes, stood up and walked feebly. The whole school shouted for joy. But a deep lesson came to me that night, one I can never forget. I stayed up with the fawn until two o'clock. When I fell asleep, the deer appeared in a dream and spoke to me. You are holding me back. Please let me go. Let me go. All right, I answered in the dream. And I awoke immediately and cried out, Boys, the deer is dying. The children rushed to my side. I ran to the corner of the room where I had placed the pet. It made a last effort to rise, stumbled toward me, then dropped at my feet, dead. According to the mass karma which guides and regulates the destinies of animals, the deer's life was over, and it was ready to progress to a higher form. But by my deep attachment, which I later realized was selfish, and by my fervent prayers, I had been able to hold it in the limitations of the animal form from which the soul was struggling for release. The soul of the deer made its plea in a dream because without my loving permission, it either would not or could not go. As soon as I agreed, it departed. We're just talking about Yogananda's father's attachment to him and immediately afterwards we see just another little string of attachment that Yogananda created. Of course, this is more you can say symbolic to a certain degree. I think using the imagery and the example of a pet deer, he's brought a little impersonality because you can think of, okay, this is the deer, yeah, it's ready to progress. But it's harder for us to think in terms of our really dear dear ones, our loved ones, um, our children, our parents, so on and so forth. And especially right now, how poignant this is. Just in our previous chapters, we, uh, which was it? Brother Ananta, Ananta and Sister Nalini, in which again Ananta passes away and Nalini is about to pass away. And, and we see this real interesting difference, right, Yogananda? Not at all praying for Ananta. In fact, leaving entirely knowing that if he was there he would hold Ananta back but in Nalini's case him just giving all his energy all his attention and essentially pulling her out back from the jaws of death and a similar thing now happening here here's this beautiful baby fawn who of course you know what you would on one hand call an accident something that's unfortunate. Oh, that boy, if only, only he had listened to Yogananda, if he wasn't so disobedient. You know, I can't imagine Yogananda coming back and getting really upset at this boy. How dare you, you know, not follow my 
life has to use, even the fawn had to use channels all around it to allow its life blueprint to play out, to allow that whole progress and process that all of us have signed up for to play out. That child played his part, however we may say that if only he hadn't. But here it is, this beautiful deer on its deathbed and Yogananda with the power, more power than some of us have to be able to in fact in the astral world say, ah, 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 I'm not letting this guy go. I'm sorry, I want him to stay, I want her to stay. Because he could do that and the truth is we can do that too. You know, through our absolute fervent prayers, through our attachment, we can change to a certain destiny. degree change the flows of destinies of fate and the more powerful our own ability to affect change first, of course, in our own lives, the greater our ability becomes also to affect change in the lives of others. And that's why I'm saying in Yogananda's case, it was just obvious. But then what happens? Here comes the deer, comes to him in a dream and says, you're holding me back. Now, all of us will not have something as dramatic if there's somebody in your life who perhaps is going through a potential transition it, does it mean that we shouldn't pray for them? Does it mean that we should just sit back and say, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen? Of course not. Uh, prayer, in fact, is less for uh, the person and often is much more for us. Because in prayer, we allow ourselves to be open to God. We allow ourselves at least potentially to ask to be aligned to God's will. But yes, when prayer is used, this has to change and you have to do what I want and this is how I want it to be and this person ought to be alive and well in the way that I think they ought to be alive and well. Yeah, as much as it sounds like we're being very magnanimous and we're like really thinking about this other person, truth is we don't know anything about their soul. And what we really are asking for is, I am feeling hurt. And I don't want to feel hurt. And therefore, you need to fix this situation. Of course, it's being projected onto this other being. And therefore, it feels like a selfless flow. But in most cases, in truth, it tends not to be. It's about how I feel and how I don't want to feel. And if only this person were better, I wouldn't feel like this. And that's the hurt that we are going through in our prayers and to a certain degree Yogananda kind of mimicking that thing that this I love this deer and I don't want it to go so here I am I'm just holding it in its body but of course the deer comes fortunately in Yogananda's case his consciousness was so open and so connected and united which again our consciousness can be as well if we live the life that these masters live the deer was able to come and very clearly put forth its case and say, listen, I need to move on, you know, and you're holding me back. And in some cases, that's not true. As we, as, as we said, in Nalini's case, it wasn't true. Yogananda really felt that it would be detrimental, perhaps, to her spiritual progress to leave the body right now. And so he allowed that process. And in fact, through that, both she and her husband then, of course, progressed so much. And then both of them left their bodies almost together simultaneously, very consciously as well. So we really need to tune into, and of course it's a sensitive subject, and right now even more sensitive, but something each of us in our own way, according to our own abilities to really tune into. And therefore, it's very helpful no matter what prayer you have, even if it's a very personal prayer, even if it's a very selfish prayer, there's nothing wrong with it at all. But try your best to end all your prayers, especially for others, always saying, God, but whatever the case, let your will be done. Because more than anything else, what I really want is to know and attune myself to your will. Because when I have that, then I'll know how to navigate this world. Because death's going to come, birth's going to happen, and that process is inevitable. So one way or the other, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, you and I will perish. And there'll be somebody, hopefully, who will be grieving for us, which is a beautiful thing. Even Yogananda grieved, as he did for his brother, as he did, we'll see, for his guru, as he's doing right now, for his beautiful pet deer. The grieving is okay, but it's the attachment 
that binds and blinds us? I, I think there is a very powerful moment here in this paragraph. Once Yogananda realizes that mm. his attachment, in this case for that particular mm. bed, is holding his own evolution, and he realizes that inwardly, very strongly, he says, all right, I'm ready to let that go. And I was thinking for many of us, we don't have a deer or we don't have a pet that comes to us in our dream, but sometimes it's a habit, a tendency, an attitude, a thought pattern that we are so attached, so identified with it that even when we realize we need to let that go in order to keep growing spiritually, we are not able to. We recognize it, we see it, we know we have to let go, and yet we are not able to say, all right. And I think that's the point where each one of us need to achieve. Every month, every couple of weeks, are we really let go of any tendency, any attitude, any wrong habit, any um, discipline that we have to develop, develop and we have not yet? I mean, anything that we need to let go, are we able to do it with such determination that we free ourselves from that? habit or tendency or attitude. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, at least for me, very symbolic, that if I don't arrive to that inner determination and to develop that courage to let go of a tendency of mine that is uh, preventing me from moving forward, uh, I will always be bound by Maya. I will always be um, identified with my ego tendencies. So perhaps we need to find our own dears and our own tendencies and allow them to talk to us and telling us, let me go. I mean, this doesn't belong to me anymore. This doesn't belong of my, to my soul. And that's why introspection plays a crucial role because it's that moment after our meditation where we can become aware of those tendencies and attachments that are blinding, blinding, mm -hmm. yes, blinding um, the goal and the journey and it keeps, you know, keeps us always uh, where we are. So look for those dears in your life uh, in the form of tendencies, attitudes, habits, and wrong thought patterns that each one of us have. And thank God we have the spiritual path and Kriya Yoga and meditation, energization exercises to really keep, you know, bit by bit getting rid of all of them. And we know it takes many lifetimes, but once we are on the path, uh, the process is way shorter. The last line here is also important again for us to tune into, which is the deer made its plea because without my loving permission, it either would not or could not go. And again, coming back to the concept of our own loved ones, that's a very key moment here. And sometimes it's our own grief and our own attachment that really holds that process or stops that process. Swami Kriyananda wrote this extremely just beautiful conversation as part of the astral ascension ceremony, which is when a soul does, you know, in, leave the body. Because as it leaves the body, those next three days primarily are very crucial for that process. And it, in those three days, especially no longer encased in the body, the soul or the astral body more appropriately can feel much more than when it felt in a body and it feels our grief and it feels our pain and it feels our attachment and it feels our longings and it feels our regrets 
and it gets confused by it and it doesn't quite know should I be coming back here should I be moving back into the light and that process is very very important so yes maybe you've put out a lot of energy to pray to try to ask for a miracle healing which as I said is not only very appropriate but a wonderful 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 thing to do but then if and when something becomes obvious that that movement is happening do and over here as Yogananda says loving permission not just okay you know how sometimes we're really upset but we say okay we have to really just allow for that and that conversation in the astral ascension ceremony is just that my friend you who have come you who are now leaving Go in joy, go in freedom, go into the light because I love you. And because I love you, all I want is your absolute highest. So tune into that, especially now we're praying for so many people, all of us. Um, tune into that reality as well. Constantly balance your prayer with God's will and with the soul evolution of each individual. All sorrow left me. I realized anew that God wants his children to love everything as a part of him and not to feel delusively that death ends all. The ignorant man sees only the unsurmountable wall of death, hiding seemingly forever his cherished friends. But the man of unattachment, he who loves others as expressions of the Lord, understands that at death the dear ones have only returned for a breathing space of joy in him it's almost like we're saying all right you go rest for a little while because <laughs> you know we all know it's hard isn't it life every day remember we talked in the previous chapter about sleep where yogananda was in kriya yoga he was talking about sleep and how he said that sleep's essential not just because the body needs to rest, is because the soul needs to rest away from the body for a little while. Because it can't stay in limitation forever. It can't be bound by flesh and bone all the time. It's too much for it. And therefore, death is a part of that same process where our life is just one long day and death is just another night and then comes another day, just on a larger scale. Just as we would have every day, you and I don't get confused when somebody says, I'm going to go and sleep. We don't say, no, don't go and sleep, please, don't leave me. Well, of course, we'll say, yeah, of course, go sleep, please rest. And the same is true for death as well. Please rest. Because we know how much it takes for the soul in this confusing reality, so attached, so limited, so unsure of everything, to say, take a rest from that. And that's how Yogananda is saying, a saint, he who is of unattachment, just sees that ah, they're just going and resting a little while. And they rejoice in the fact that they get to rest in that joy. Just as you would be very happy when somebody after a long day says, I'm going to go and sleep for a little while. I'm going to rest a little while. And you say, of course, you must. The Ranchi school grew from a small, grew from small and simple beginnings to an institution now well known in India. This is, of course, 1946 when Yogananda wrote this. Many departments of the school are supported by voluntary contributions from those who rejoice in perpetuating the educational ideals of the rishis. Under the general name of Yogoda Satsanga, flourishing branches, branch schools have been established in Midnapur, Lakshmanpur, and Puri. So, of course, Yogoda Satsanga. Yogoda Satsanga, which is now Yogoda Satsang Society, is it? Yeah. Uh, YSS is the organization Yogananda started in India originally, which still exists to this day and is still continuing to fulfill his ideals and still growing and flourishing. Uh, but it's amazing that it started just as an educational institution for children and not as we see it today or as we would think of it today as a tool of self-realization. But for Yogananda, that was this one and the same. If children could receive just the right awareness of what life is, that that awareness will naturally kind of grow into a desire for self-realization. And that's what you can say, it's come full circle, starting with that intention. Now, of course, it is very much a vehicle for thousands, perhaps millions across the world to learn and study these teachings, to receive Kriya, 
and to hopefully work on their egos and find that freedom. The Ranchi headquarters maintains a medical department where medicines and the services of doctors are supplied freely to the poor of the locality. The number treated has averaged more than 18,000 persons a year. Again, this is 1946, which for that time, this is wonderful stuff. India was not even yet um, a free country at that time. The British were still ruling over us. The school now in its 28th year and the center of many activities has been honored by visits of eminent men from the East and the West. One of the earliest figures to inspect the Vidyale in its first year was Swami Pranabhananda, the Banaras saint with two bodies. I know we've come a long way. I hope all of you remember the story of the saint with two bodies. This was in Varanasi in Banaras. Master as a young little boy goes and has a message from his father to give him. And uh, Swami Pranabhananda who was sitting there goes into a, you know, withdraws into a little bit of that it's inward silent space and just comes out and says, oh yeah, the person who your father needs to give this message to, he's on his way, I've told him to come here. And Yogananda gets a little like, how could you have told him you've been sitting here all this while? And suddenly, of course, this man comes and says, oh yeah, Swami Pranavananda in a completely different body comes to him, tells him that come to my house, tell, you know, and so on and so forth. And so therefore, that's the title of that chapter, The Saint with Two Bodies. So. Swami Pranabhananda, no ordinary man, comes to visit the school. As the great master viewed the picturesque outdoor classes held under the trees and saw in the evening that young boys were sitting motionless for hours in yoga meditation, he was profoundly moved. Joy comes to my heart, he said, to see that Lahiri Mahashaya's ideals for the proper training of youth are being carried on in this institution. My Guru's blessings be on it. Again and again in this book you see that mark of true discipleship. You know, no matter who this person is, no matter how great, no matter what their own realization, you never say, you, he, he could easily have said, ah, joy comes to my heart to see that the you know, true teachings of Sanatan Dharma are being lived in this school and my blessings, which his blessings would have been equally powerful, my blessings be on it. But no, he says, so wonderful to see Lahiri Mahashaya's ideals being lived. May my Guru's blessings be on it. it the spiritual path is so tricky till the very, very end. Yogananda said, until we do not achieve a state of nirvikalpa samadhi, you are still not safe. Which means until you've not completely dissolved any sense of ego, even the tiniest vestige of an individual limited reality, you can fall again and again from the spiritual path. In fact, Yogananda said, at the stage of Savikalpa Samadhi, it takes a long time to in fact get to Nirvikalpa because at Savikalpa, you have the experience of being infinite, being one with the universe, but then you return back to the body and you can delusively think, I am God, I am the, you know, I am that universe. And then that spiritual pride begins to take over. And I mean, you don't have to even get to Savikalpa Samadhi for that spiritual pride to take over. It's happening to all of us all the time. No, you know, I handled that test quite well. No, you didn't. Your guru gave you the grace to handle that test really well. You were able to for a moment open yourself to that grace really well. But these are the ideals of Lahiri Mahashaya. These are the ideals of my guru. My guru's blessings beyond it. And these saints are so aware of the fact and they stay in that little tiny narrow path that says but even if I start thinking I have any real you know kind of power here to give and if I haven't fully merged into the infinite I can easily fall from that state and so as a true disciple they just give everything back to the Guru allowing even more so in the process to the Guru to flow through them because yeah he said my Guru's blessings be on it but he was being the channel for those blessings but at least he was allowing the Guru's power to flow through him and not delusively feel in that moment that 
he had any blessings of his own to give even though in this particular case he actually did so these things are very humbling especially for us who you know, haven't done much <laughs> haven't attained much haven't really figured out much haven't experienced much um, yet we somehow think you know, I'm doing this I'm doing that now I've understood this entirely uh, that little test that I had now have overcome it and the truth is we really haven't done that much at all but yes we do have somebody who could, can do anything through us but if we close ourselves to him by thinking that we are the doer and this is the basic teaching of the Bhagavad Gita as well to move from I am the doer to God is the doer and in our particular case the Guru is the doer because it helps relate to a more specific form of God so that that relationship is not vague or abstract but really real and strong and can be built on daily but a very very important thing which you can see time and time again is the major theme in this book the Guru, the disciple, the Guru, the disciple again and again how the two keep coming together until that complete unity of consciousness exists and reading this paragraph um, makes me think that the real mission of Yogananda was the combination of this line of gurus because Christ came to bring a specific teaching then Lahiri Mahashaya Babaji's influence then Sri Yudeshwar's, you know, certain aspects to society that he wanted to bring and magnetize. And then Swami uh, Paramahansa Yogananda himself. So his mission really is a combination of these five rays of light that really touch and uplift every area of society in education, in the householder department, in terms of a, a specific practice of meditation and, you know, an approach to life. I mean, we can see here in this book so many times when Yogananda is quoting Christ's words and teachings. Then now Lahiri Mahashaya's, you know, real wish for education and the training that these kids are having is what Lahiri Mahashaya envisioned. And then you will see, you know, about uh, Yogananda's mission using Sri Yudeshwar's approach and teachings. So this path, according to me, <laughs> is so complete. It's just like a combination mm. of those you know, five rays, and it, it makes it um, even much more powerful, Absolutely. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you were just saying, I was thinking like, very much as householder, Sri Yukteswar was like householder who is shifted into, you know, sannyas. Yes, yeah. And Yogananda just absolute sannyas. Babaji is like, I'm going to hold this body, but I'm going to be far away from all of you guys. And actually opening, you <laughs> know, the different. Kriya Yoga, you know, bringing Kriya Yoga and opening that to the world, I mean, that's huge. I mean, one of them is like, no, <laughs> this has to be given to everyone. It's like opened up, you know, a, a doorway for you, for me, for anyone to be part of this divine mission, which is the upliftment of your consciousness, my consciousness, your children consciousness, <laughs> your grandchildren consciousness. So each one of us, uh, really has a role to play. So I, I just love the fact that this path is so open and so many other um, influences. influences are playing a vital role for this world. It's an interesting balance how expansive the path is, yet how you know Narrow. completely focused the path is, mm -hmm. where it does not let any dilution enter into its being. And both of, you know, just as your spiritual path, we as individuals also have to, you know, live on both these planes. How expansive our awareness of the world is where we really try to include all of us and nobody is separate from it. Whether, you know, whatever their own path be, whatever their ignorance or wisdom be. Yet at the same time in our own focus towards self-realization, we don't let anything stray or divert our attention. We don't let any other influence that's not 
just as the Guru has placed it before us to enter in, to dilute it or change it and how hard at times both these flows can be. How can one be truly expansive yet be completely committed to that singular vision of the spiritual path and that really is um, the entire journey how God can be completely in the entire universe and yet individually focused on each of us guiding each of us towards freedom I mean that's how, I mean that's beyond any capability that our mind will be able to comprehend but uh, that's the awareness and that's where what we're tearing apart Either we are too expansive and therefore we're too wishy-washy and we don't quite know what's really good for us and what isn't because we just think that we have to be completely open or we are too narrow and too rigid and too stuck in our own ways. But as you see here and as Narayani is kind of uh, iterating through the fact that we've got these five amazing gurus is you've got the expansive potential yet you've got the very clear and focused path itself and whatever your path may be live you know with that clear understanding sometimes somebody says yeah Krishna is my guru but you know I'm also doing this and I'm also doing that and I'm also doing that it's like well if Krishna is your guru he's pretty much given everything you need in the Gita so why don't you just follow that you know somebody says Sai Baba is my guru but you know 600 other things that I'm also if Sai Baba is your guru Sai Baba has done an amazing job too of really laying down a very clear path why don't you just do that and that's very important. Do that which, which you think your Guru has given you. Yet, your heart should be so open that it can in fact fit everybody in the world in it. Well, with that, because right now we need open hearts to really allow the world to fit into it. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And in one hour, remember to do your exercise. And tomorrow we'll have a satsang.